We are at Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, the text for this morning is Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. We have one verse. Uh, Exhortations to fathers. We'll begin reading from Ephesians 5, verse 21 uh, through 6, verse 4. This is God's holy word. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that he might be holy, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. May we go to our God and ask for his blessings on the reading and also the preaching of his holy word. Our loving Father, we thank you for your generous provision for us. We thank you, Father, for the parents you have given us, especially our fathers. We give you thanks, especially for those who are in Christ, who love the Lord Jesus, who uh, have given of themselves sacrificially, uh, who are faithful servants of you. Father, we pray acknowledging that you are the perfect father, that you are the one who always knows what is best for your children. Father, we <clears throat> thank you for you give us the very best. And Father, we ask that you would guide us even this day, that we might receive uh, your warnings, that we would heed them, and that we might obey your commands. Father, we know that being a father And being a mother is no easy task. And Father, we pray that you would guide us. And we thank you, Father, for our Lord Jesus, who indeed is our hope for salvation. We pray, Father, that our Lord Jesus would be exalted and that your servant would be humbled. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Is it the case that uh, the people who are not walking in the shoes of others seem to know so much about how to walk in the shoes of others. Is this true for parenting? Is this true for being a father? Children, I'm looking at you. It seems like you know an awful lot about being fathers, being parents, until you become a parent, and then you realize how little you know about being a parent. I remember as a young man, probably around 13 or 14, I think I could have written a book about parenting. 
And then I realized after I became a parent, especially of a 14-year-old, how little I knew about parenting. And, and maybe this, this rule can be applied for everything. It applies to being a doctor, applies to being a police officer, applies to uh, being a teacher, applies to uh, being a, uh, a waiter. You, you, you add to that list, the list goes on and on. We, we know everything about everyone's job but our own until it becomes our job. Is this, is this the rule that, is it only me who, who seems to learn this lesson? Or do you all see it to some degree? That we think about parenting, what it means to be a father or a mother, and it's no easy task. We think we have it figured out until we're the ones who have that authority. And so often we run away from that authority. We don't want the responsibility. Here, we think about how the Apostle Paul is coming to the close. He's wrapping up his great epistle. Here, we talk about how he begins his letters with the theory, with the theology. And he continues, and then at some point there's a transition. We see it in the beginning of Ephesians chapter 4, where he, he goes from telling us what God has done for us to telling us uh, how then we ought to live. And even in these sections where he's giving us instruction, he can't avoid speaking about the theology, speaking, speaking about uh, our relationship with God and Christ's relationship with the church. Here, even as we think about uh, our role and our duties as fathers, he gives us instructions regarding who God is, that our God is the one who has commanded us that we would walk according to the light, for our God is light. Here we think also about how easy it is to say, I'm not a father, or I'm not even a male, so this doesn't apply to me. Well, I want you to listen carefully, because here it'd be helpful to, to understand the struggles and the challenges that others in the church face. The struggles may not be your own if you are a male and not yet married or uh, not yet with children, but uh, it's helpful to learn a, a little something about your task, your responsibility before that responsibility comes. And if anything, for the women of the church to be able to understand if you're a mother, what you are called to help your husband with, and also how you might be in prayer for the families of the church. So the truth that we see in this passage, this verse, fathers, nurture your children according to the perfect example of our one God and Father of all. Fathers, nurture your children according to the perfect example of our one God and Father of all. We'll look at this in two points. First, the warnings to fathers, and second, the mandate to fathers. So the warning to fathers, the first point, we have that in the first half of verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Here, we see what the Apostle Paul is doing from Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. He opens the door to a new section, this 521, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And from it, he addresses the matter of submission. He begins uh, with the subordinate. So he begins with wives. So he begins with the most important relationship, that of marriage. So he addresses wives. But he doesn't just address subordinates. He addresses those uh, who are 
um, above. He addresses the husbands. And we see that even in this situation, he addresses the husbands far more than he addresses the wives. Here, we think about how God is one who knows what is best. And there's so much in this one verse. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That many sermons, many books could be written even on this one verse. Here we think about how when the Lord Jesus redeems sinners, he saves sinners. He also wants to be at work in the relationships that you have. That part of his redeeming, you know, keep in mind, it's very easy for us to think that salvation is merely a personal thing, which it must be. It must be a personal thing between God and us, but it, it is not merely a personal thing. You see that even in the book of Genesis, in the promises, the covenants that God made with Abraham, that it wasn't an individual. See, you think about our country and our society and how individualistic we are. Other times, other places, people don't think individually, they think collectively. And there's some great flaw in our society for us only to think uh, individually. When God wants us to think collectively, he wants, to think, he wants us to think not only about families, but he wants us to think about lineages. That God would be God to Abraham and to his descendants after him. Here, we think about how God desires to redeem sinners. And in so doing, he also works in the relationships in and around them. We think about how a man recently converted, or one who has been raised in the Christian faith for many, many generations, that there must be a transformation of thinking. There must be a transformation of how ought I to live my life? And, and in so doing, how ought I to train my children? Here, we think about how there is no such thing as a neutral or unbiased method or philosophy for raising children. There is no neutrality. And regarding the raising up of children, there is certainly no neutrality. Well, perhaps you challenge that and say, no, you're wrong. Uh, there, is, there is neutral space, and, and uh, you know, the society knows about that. Well, I ask you some simple questions. Is man meaning mankind, an infant even, are they inherently good or are they inherently evil? Society believes that man is inherently good, especially infants. You as a parent know from the scriptures and from your experience that that is false. Infants are not inherently good, they're inherently evil. We didn't have to teach them that. It was in their hearts. It only gets manifested more and more as they get older. Your answer will determine your motives and your methods for child rearing. Here we think about how, how we view what God has told us, how we prioritize what God has instructed us will determine so much about our instruction and our discipline for our children. Here I think about the simple questions. What is your highest goal or your greatest fear for your children? You answer those two questions. What is your highest goal? What is your greatest fear for your children?
If you answer the questions, that'll determine how you will raise your children. Here we think about life often is summarized in a series of choices. That a father, he thinks about from the day he brings this child home, he probably has about 18 years. And in our society, uh, it's 18 years, and then you have an addendum, right, where it's that the boomerang kid, he, he, he goes out 18, and then he somehow at 30, 35, he, he comes back. So you have 18 years, and maybe, and then some, right? We don't know about that. We'll, we'll see. But you have 18 years uh, to, to give instruction and guidance. But then some of you are going to say, no, no, you're right. You're right. It's not just 18 years. Because you think about the series of choices that a man makes before he is married, before his children are born. In fact, which woman he will marry. In other words, the decisions that you are making right now as a young person will affect your children in the future, the children yet to be born. Try to think about it in that perspective. The, the decisions you make right now will affect your children who are yet unborn. Well, what about those who are grown and out of the house? Well, to those who are a bit grayer, a bit lighter. Choices that a father makes, even after his children leave the home, still have an effect upon them. This is oftentimes what gives Christians hope. Of the children out of the house, uh, they may not be walking with the Lord or not well, but um, it gives us hope in that we pray for our children, we still have a relationship with them, uh, that surprisingly, they will call us on occasion and ask for our opinions, even in raising their own children. And that has influence upon them for good. Here, I address children. I address children. Do you have it all figured out already? <clears throat> this quote, often attributed to Mark Twain, well, was it really Mark Twain? I think summarizes my understanding, my life. Perhaps it might summarize yours. Here he says, when I was a boy of 14, my father was so ignorant, I could hardly stand to have the old man around. But when I got to be 21, I was astonished at how much the old man had learned in seven years. <laughs> and, and here, isn't this the case with all of us? Right? So maybe it's not at 14 or 21, maybe it's at 13 and 35. Right? But at some point, you look back, and you say, wow, I, I'm, I'm correcting, interpreting some of the things he's saying. His, his parents didn't learn all that much in those seven years. He happened to learn that he was wrong in all those things, and his parents were actually right. Here, I'm even addressing you children who think your parents didn't get it quite right or got it completely off, that here, you think about the good training that you've received. Let's not despise it. Yes, it ought to be refined. We ought to be thankful that the Lord wants one to be a well-discipled believer. One of the best things he can do for a person is he gives them faithful, believing parents, a godly mother and father. Here we think about the context in which the Apostle Paul is writing. He's writing in first century Rome. And they had this principle 
patria potestas. It's the power of a father. And it meant near absolute power of a father over his children. And not, it's not just until they leave the home, it's until the father dies. The Roman father, when his child was born, supposedly there was some kind of a practice where they would put the infant at the child's feet. And at that point, the father could decide, don't want this child. This child is dead to me. And, and then the child gets left. Society, they, they would prob- someone would claim the child as a slave or be put into prostitution. Or you know, back then, first century Rome, it was often the Christians who would come to claim these children to adopt them, to care for them. A a Roman father could sell his child or his children into slavery. He could could essentially take their life without repercussion, without a violation of the law. And a child's duties to his father never ended. Didn't end at adulthood, didn't end when he left the home, didn't end until his father died. You can imagine the context and, and the abuses that would have happened in this system. Here we... Think about our own cultural context. You think about the decay of marriage, the, the decay of the nuclear family in our modern society. You think about how uh, incarceration, you look at the rates of incarceration and uh, what, are, what are the, the common, what are the common uh, occurrences in the lives of those who are incarcerated. For the men, it's fatherlessness. Not having a positive influence of a father because having a godly mother is not enough. That wasn't God's design. God's design was that children would be raised by a godly mother and a godly father. Here we think about the attacks from all directions on men in society, especially on husbands and fathers. This attack is not random. It's a coordinated attack. We think about the enemies. The enemies aren't people. We ought not to see the enemies as people. We ought to see that the people are the pawns. The, the enemy is Satan. He, he's moving around his, his ministers of darkness. And he understands the trickle-down effect. That if you, if you strike at the marriage, it'll have repercussions in the family, in the church, and in society. So Satan seeks to destroy the one-man, one-woman marital union. The various ways he attacks that. Then he, you realize that whatever attack Satan puts on that marriage, it has a, a doubling effect, uh, a trickle-down effect towards, towards the family, towards parenting. Just think for a moment. Divorce is the, is the breakup of what God has joined together. We're told not to put it asunder. You tear that marriage apart. Just imagine what that does to discipline in children. Just think about the playing of favorites, occurring a favor, and, and then you think about who, who then is parenting these children. You think about the blended families, very difficult at that point. <clears throat> think also about the various ways in which a father can fail. Simply have the absentee father, he's not there. <clears throat> he, he does the biological work and he's out of the picture. How about the, the pay-the-bills-only father? He sees his role as, hey, I go to work, I get the paycheck, I provide for my children, and that's it. And you look at our society, I mean, if, if we could have even that, 
It seems like that would be an improvement. But the Lord requires far more. You think about the weak-willed father. Uh, it's like uh, having a father who, who sets up a fence that's made out of jello, right? The kid just has to push, and, and, and the fence just falls over. And they think the dad is like a teddy bear because he has a jello fence. There's no respect, and eventually these children will hate this father. In fact, they, they will probably take his life. Here, do you think about a neglectable father? A neglectful father is one who thinks about what's good for himself. He doesn't think about his sacrifices to his children. He thinks about what's good for himself. There's the domineering father and the abusive father. Here, we think about the abuse that takes place in marriage and in parenting. And the world will say, this is, these are the reasons why those institutions must be broken down and rejected. No, there's all kinds of abuses. It doesn't justify the destruction of, of these God-given designs. Marriage is still good. Parenting is still good. Just because there's abuses in it, it doesn't mean they're wrong. They must be redeemed. Here, we think about how much pressure there is on the Christian man. A Christian man, living correctly, must struggle with his own rejection by the world. Jesus warned, they hated you, or they hated me, they will hate you too. And that is how life is for the Christian. It's, it's an accepting of that, you know what, I'm not going to have the favor of the world. Uh, if I were of the world, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But you're not. You've been called out of the world. This is what Jesus does. He calls his people out of the world. And, and then... There will be a rejection. There will be an acknowledgement of that rejection. For the father, on top of that, he has his children pushing against him, saying, Dad, why can't we be like the world? Why can't we be like the world? So he's got his own struggles of the world saying, Hey, just take this one step. Take, take this one step. Come on, take this one step, and we'll, we'll love you as our own. And, and you take that one step, and no, no, there, there's, no take this two steps. And, and it doesn't end. And so he has his children pushing against him too, saying, why can't we just be like our friends? We want to fit in. Here, we think about how in our society, we don't have this patria potestas, this power of the father, power of life and death. We can't sell our children into slavery. We should be thankful, children, that there's such a rule. But you think about how much power and authority there is in parents. You think about the eternal effect that parents have, the words that we use, discipline and instruction. That will affect your children for an eternity. Here we, we look at the, at the address there in verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Very interesting that when we look a few verses earlier, chapter 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents. Notice it doesn't say children, obey your father. And then he comes back and says fathers. So, so he's saying that children are, are obligated to obey their parents, mother and father. Yet in verse 4, fathers do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Perhaps you might ask, why? why? Why is this? 
here. It's a reminder to fathers where the responsibility and where the duty lies. It's a reminder that you think about Adam was given instructions that his job was to tend the garden. That was his role, it was tend the garden. And what was Eve's role? Her role was to be the helper to her husband. So if his job was to tend the garden, then her job was to help him tend that garden. And you think about fathers. The father's role, he, he doesn't need to be giving all the instructions. See, part of, part of the father's role, he might have delegated instruction, discipline. So obviously there's, a, there's much that gets delegated to the wife, to the mother. This is why it's so important that you pick the right woman, right? You pick a godly woman. <clears throat> Here, this delegated authority then, or delegated instruction, meaning that he, he might not be the, the instructor of his children, the, the only instructor, because there's going to be instruction in the school. There's going to be instruction in sports. There's going to be instructions in the church. And there's a delegated there's a delegated authority, delegated instruction. And still, though, the father is responsible for all of that. He's responsible for it. Here, we think about mothers not being excluded. But it's a reminder that the ultimate authority of raising children rests with fathers. They're often the ones who set the tone in the household. The wife is expected to help her husband in his calling. And so she will help him raise these children. So this concise verse to fathers applies to mothers by extension. Here we, we think about this warning, do not provoke your children to anger. We think about the ways, the common ways that fathers and mothers provoke their children to anger. It's not an exhaustive list that I'm going to give you. And it's not a, it's not a list that I've managed to avoid. In fact, many of these are on the list because I see them in my own life. Here, the first one is children are provoked to anger by loveless parenting. You think about how parenting, there ought to be kindness and affection. There ought to be care and compassion in our parenting. That fathers should love their children. That you think about how in God's dealings with his children, us. If you're from the West, oftentimes it's, hey, there ought to be positive reinforcement. And if you're from the East, you probably understand, hey, there ought to be negative reinforcement. So positive reinforcement is, is encouragement, blessing, good for good that they do. And in the East, there's an understanding of uh, there's correction and, and the rod and rebuke when things are done poorly. But you ask, well, how, how does our God do it? I think our God, in his example, uses both. You read through the book, even of Deuteronomy, he, he, there's blessings and curses. That he gives both encouragement. He gives blessing. He shows favor. And when there's disobedience, unfaithfulness, right, then he corrects with the rod. There's both. It's not which one, it's both. Here, <clears throat> we think about hypocrisy. The old adage, do as I say, not as I do. You can use that dad voice for a two-year-old, a four-year-old, but by the time the kid turns 10, 
or maybe even six, they're not going to settle for this do as I say, not as I do. It's just not going to continue. Here, think about some of the simple ways that we do this, this hypocrisy. Requiring immediate full repentance of your children, uh, but not of yourself. We often do this, where we expect them, uh, if they've sinned against their sibling, that you would require them to ask for forgiveness, seek restitution. Do we do that with our own children? You think about the simple message of the gospel. Part of repentance, part of forgiveness, uh, is that we model what the gospel looks like, and we have to repent before our children. We should. It ought to be, they, they ought to have a witness. Hey, my mom and my dad, they, they did this regularly because they believe the gospel. We think about, well, are we going to lose our testimony? Well, hey, it's better that you do that because you're testifying you believe the gospel. Correct? Here we think about also inconsistent or sporadic application of discipline and rules. If uh, you're in a bad mood and you will correct, or if you're in a good mood, there's no rules to follow, well, that's going to embitter your children, that there ought to be consistency. What about overprotection? Think about the principle of if I could build four brick walls and you know a brick basement and a brick roof, so six, six, six brick walls around your children, would you? The answer is you can't. Because here, you think about all the negative incidences that come from outside, but Jesus warns, well, it's not what goes into you. It's not what goes into you that matters, what comes out of you. So you could, you could close off all avenues, but what comes out of their own hearts is still pollution. You think about how you grow, how I grow in the Christian life. I'm going to summarize it like this. It's being able to fail and to learn from it. Being able to fail and to learn from it. We ought to be able to say, typical experience, you crawl into bed before you fall asleep. You think about, oh, you review your day. Maybe you do it before you crawl into bed because there may not be much time or, or, or rational thought. But the bottom line is, you think about your day. <clears throat> wow, this day that the Lord has given me, I didn't use it very well in whatever, whatever means. Was it bad time management? Was it sinful things that I thought and did? Well, today I failed. I failed miserably. And you think about part of growing up then for children. They have to be able to fail, and we have to give them room to fail. We cannot do everything for them. In fact, if you try to do everything for them, that only trains them to learn to blame others for what goes wrong in their life. Because everyone's doing everything for them, they can always blame somebody else. You can't do it for them. You think about even simple things like setting the table. You got to start them out young. And it's not going to be done right the first time. Just as our service to the Lord is never done right the first time, or the last time, right? For that matter, or the last time. <sighs> Having unrealistic expectations of our children. Part of Israel being slaves in Egypt, Moses goes and asks for time to worship God. 
that they might serve and offer sacrifice to God. And Pharaoh says, you know what? You guys are a bunch of lazy bums. So he says, I'm going to increase your work, and I'm going to require you to make bricks without straw. He's like, hey, how do you make, how do you make bricks without, you need straw to make bricks. And he says, I'm not going to give it to you. And, and you think about how unrealistic expectations. We have that of our children, whether they're academic or spiritual. Do you want your child to be able to, to master differential and integral calculus by the age of seven? Right? It seems, that seems a little unrealistic. Right? And, and here, if we, if we treat a 16-year-old like we treat a four-year-old, right? you, you, you give instructions and commands to a four-year-old, but uh, if they're 16, you know, I suppose you, you still can give commands, but then you realize that responsibility is supposed to have grown. You, you can't treat a 16-year-old like a four-year-old. It's unrealistic expectations. The simple matter of favoritism. You look at the scriptures. You look at the accounts in Genesis of our patriarchs. They didn't do it perfectly. You look at how Isaac, he liked Esau. It seemed rather simple. He liked Esau because Isaac liked the taste of wild game, and Esau was a skilled hunter. And then you had Rebekah, who believed the promises of God, that the older would serve the younger, so she favored Jacob. Maybe because he was by the tents that he spent more time with mom also. Uh, the bottom line is, the God, our God said that the older would serve the younger, but it did not require her manipulation and deception for God to accomplish that. You think about Isaac. Isaac and how his marriage and his family was divided because of this favoritism. And then you look at Jacob. Well, Jacob had, is it four wives or is it two wives and two concubines, right? Uh, Laban didn't do him any favors, okay, uh, deceiving him. But you look at how tragedy in his household, turmoil, he had favoritism for, for Rachel and her two children, Joseph and Benjamin. You see what happened with uh, how his brothers hated him and sold him into slavery, but this is all part of God's plan. It doesn't excuse their sin. The favoritism, very bad. The children look for some type of fairness, some kind of justice, even in, in how they're being dealt with. Parents, we understand, though, that children deal with things differently. And you ask about how easy it is for favoritism to show up. Well, you realize that we all have different preferences. We all have different preferences. This one thinks exactly like me and annoys me. Or this one thinks entirely different from me, and I don't get him or her. Favoritism happens, and we realize that there's a need to try to be objective. What about being overbearing or hypercritical? The harshness in discipline. Correcting in anger, discipline in anger. Parents, if you've ever done this, I'm going to strike right at the root of it. At least it's true for me. When you discipline children in anger, it's never going to go well. And it's almost always because you have been offended. Don't, don't claim, hey, 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 this is an offense against God. No, that's, that's just a bunch of hogwash. You are the one offended. And that's why you're upset. That's why you're angry. This is how we become overbearing. What about the simple matter of selfishness? 
You think about authority. The world understands that those in authority lord it over those under them. And they want to be called their benefactors. Jesus talks about this very principle. And then he says that he came uh, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. You think about, finally, you're a father. You're in charge. But following Christ's example means that you must be selfless. Your comforts, that's not primary. The well-being of your children, spiritual first, right? Their spiritual well-being, that's first and foremost. It means you must serve them. You must sacrifice for them. God has given you that authority not to be served, but to serve. And we need regularly to be reminded of that. The simple matter of neglect. We neglect our children. We find other things to do. They're not a priority for us. And they pick up on that really, really fast. What about the matter of vicarious living through your children? Well, hold on. You're wrong. Because if we made certain mistakes in life, we made bad choices, we should desire that our children would not repeat them. You're right. That enough is true. We shouldn't. God has given us certain experiences in life, and, and, and we, we start to pick up on them. Hey, hey, I, I think this is where, where he's headed with that. And we ought to warn them accordingly. That, that's, that's a good thing. But you think about forcing on them the goals and dreams that you have that never materialized. Can't do that. Right? Well, I always wanted to be this or that. So my son or daughter should do this. No, we can't do that. Having, having a son or daughter take over the family business or carrying on the tradition of the family occupation may be a great thing. But it's not, it's not good if it's against their will or if they're not gifted for them. Obviously, God gives men and women callings. He equips them for those callings. That we ought to desire uh, that they would be effective, that they ought to excel in what they've been called to do because it brings glory to God. And it might mean something very different than what you would expect for them. This is part of uh, training up, is we desire that they would be equipped to serve the Lord. So this is the first point, the warnings to fathers. We have the second point, the mandate to fathers. Second half of verse 4, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bring them up. Here, the word often used is nurture. Nurture them. Children don't raise themselves. Fruits and vegetables, they don't grow by themselves. Weeds and thorns grow by themselves. Children don't raise themselves. Their gravity will bring them down. Here you think about parents. They're always saying something. Even when you're not saying anything, to some degree, you're still saying something. Think about this matter of discipline. Discipline has become so controversial and taboo according to our society and the world. And sadly, the church has followed. The church isn't leading, the church is following. The world contrasts discipline and corruption uh, with love. And they associate any type of discipline or correction with hatred and abuse. Yeah? If you start talking about 
disciplining them in anger, there's probably some truth to it. But here, we ought to understand that our God couples discipline with true love. Proverbs 13, 24, He who withholds his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. The God says, if you don't, if you spare the rod, if you spare the rod, then you hate your son. So if you love him, there will be discipline. In fact, you look at the very description of God and his love for us. Hebrews 12, 6 and 7. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? And the author of Hebrews continues on and says, hey, no discipline seems pleasant. It's not, it's not fun. It's not enjoyable. But you realize that it is necessary. The children must have discipline. Here, you think about discipline. You think about instruction. Fathers, this much is true. You are testifying to your children all the time about who God is and what he is like every waking moment of their lives. Here I had a pastor uh, whose wife was raised in an abusive home. The father was very harsh. So when you read the scriptures and we're told that we have this heavenly father, she has a very bad image that comes up. And, and here we think about the various people in life. That if you have a loving father, he, he may not even be a believer, right? And, and for that, we must rejoice and give thanks to the Lord. But fathers are always testifying to their children by their words, by their actions, who, who God is and what he is like. We think also about instruction. Deuteronomy 6, our elder read earlier, that when you sit down and when you get up, when you walk along the road, that any time is a good time for instruction. That uh, here, talking to pastors, uh, those who instruct for a living, that their children tend to learn this pretty fast. Oh no, dad's going to go into one of his lectures again. And, and here you think back, well, are those all negative? Hopefully the children can look back and see that there are positives that come from it. In Deuteronomy 6, any time is a good time of instruction. But for parents, it's especially when children come asking. Especially when children come asking. They ask, why do we do this? Uh, it's very easy when they're young just to, to blow them off. And I kid you not, teaching adults, adults have complex questions that have simple answers. You teach a Sunday school to, you know, three to six-year-olds, they're going to ask you the most simple questions that are most fundamental, and they're going to be the most difficult to answer. And as an adult, you, you would have stopped asking those questions. Try not to blow them off. Don't do it. Just try to address them as well as you can. Here, I've been told that young people, teenagers, they tend to have the best questions, not at 8 o'clock in the morning, but probably they start to come out around 11, 11.30 p.m., uh, maybe even 
after midnight, their questions start to come. Remember another pastor I, ha- I said, he always looked tired because he had teenagers. And I understood now what he was doing. He started asking questions at 1130 when they were getting ready for bed, when, when he was already asleep. So he gets a knock at the door. There's a wake-up call. And, hey, Dad, we've we got to ask you about this. And then he stays up late answering these questions. It's not always convenient when instruction will come. We think also about the great promises that our Lord God has given us. You see this verse, Ephesians 6, verse 4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. There are great promises attached to these commands. We think about what we read earlier, Genesis 18. God said, For I have chosen him, that's Abraham, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Here, you think about God's design. God's design was for Abraham to command, or that is to instruct his children and his household to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. That Abraham's role was that he was supposed to instruct his household, teach them the ways of the Lord, teach them what they ought to believe, how they ought to obey our Lord Jesus. Here, you think about allowing children to decide their own religion. Have you heard this? Talking to people uh, who, it's saying that they don't have a clue which God they ought to worship because they're saying to their children, I'm going to allow them to make their own decision. It's saying, hey, my God is not worth worshiping. That's essentially what the parent is saying. And here, you think about God's design, Malachi 2.15, he desired godly offspring. Meaning that part of why he gives you children, we're not owners. We don't own these children. See, the, the Roman view, patria potestas, is the, the parents own these children. We do not. We're stewards of them. They belong to the Lord. We're supposed to instruct them in his ways. And he gives us exceedingly great promises. You think about the, the promise mentioned there in Genesis 18:19, So that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. What was the promise that God gave to Abraham? It was the promise that God would be God to him and to his descendants after him. Genesis 17:7. And I'll establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. God gives exceedingly great promises. This, fathers, should be a hope to you. The difficult task, the challenging task that you have is attached to promises. That you have hope. You think about the world. They don't have such hope. Now, that's not to say that if we do everything right, which we won't, if we do everything right regarding our instruction and discipline, that we will have believing children. There's no such equation of that. We ought not to think in such a way. You can do things right. You can, you can teach everything correctly. You can model everything correctly. God's promises have not failed. It's sinners who fail. It's never on God. Here you think about how 
God is the one who elects. He's the one who saves. It's a reminder also to us that your model, my model, is our Father in heaven. He is the one who disciplines. He is the one who instructs. Psalm 32, 8. I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. That we look to our Lord that he is one who is always wise. That he knows what his children need even before we ask. And he always gives us good things. Here, he finishes by saying, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. It's a reminder to us that there is no such thing as neutrality. The world says, hey, uh, we have the classroom and we cannot teach Christianity because we've got to be neutral. They're not neutral. They're promoting other religions. They're promoting false religions. The world, the world will not accept your standard or model for parenting. We have to accept that. They're going to mock you. They're going to despise you. Expect that that will come. We look at the world. We cannot use their standards and their model for parenting. The only way that we could look to them is they set the bar for failure. They don't set the bar for for what's good and right. They set the bar for failure. If we don't meet their mark, it means we're absolutely failing. Here, when we teach our children, there is a reminder to us that we cannot be neutral. We're always saying something about the Lord. That our God gives us instruction. And there is no neutrality. We're we're training them up. We're equipping them to be faithful servants of the Lord. That our desire, we teach them, we give them instruction as if they're young disciples. And our prayer, our prayers must be with them all during this time is that they would be embracing the promises of the gospel as their own. Here you think about our God as Father. Our God is one who has made exceedingly great sacrifices for us. Great sacrifices. He sent his son to to die on the cross for sinners. Was there a loss for the Father? Most certainly. There was a loss for the Son, but there was a loss for the Father. There was separation. You think about how that is our example. That is our model to follow in terms of loving our children, sacrificing. And we're reminded of the good, good news of the gospel. We're reminded that the father sent his son to die on behalf of sinners. Have you believed in this message? That there is true hope for forgiveness for sinners? That those who are outside of Christ can be brought near by his blood, washed clean. And that this is a father who loves us. That we are not those who are are condemned and, and he's hanging over us ready to judge us at any moment, but rather this is a father who loves us, who desires our obedience, who rewards faith, who desires that we will walk according to his ways and gives us great joy in doing so and great hope too. Here we think about how, for many, we deal with the reality of failure, of imperfection, of sin in fatherhood and motherhood. And there's the reminder 
that children don't necessarily become Christians because of your good or perfect parenting, which none of us are, just as we have sin in every area of our life. It includes that of parenting. Children also don't necessarily reject Christianity because their parents were bad parents. You see various examples where you know bad parents or children are faithful Christians. Okay? What about Jonathan? Huh? King Saul? Jonathan was faithful and loved the Lord. How do you figure? It wasn't because Saul did something right. Here, it's a reminder that the Holy Spirit is the one who gives new life to sinners. But God chooses to use means. We often ask ourselves in our witness to our neighbors, our friends, our co-workers, is the gospel attractive in your life? Meaning, hey, the way that you're living and you're acting in your spheres, do they, would they want to become a Christian watching you? And this, this question also must be applied to us as parents, as fathers. Is Christianity attractive to our children? It's a reminder to us that there are great responsibilities. How much it is that we are all in need of prayer. Parents, fathers especially, prayer is needed that we would not provoke our children to anger, but rather the Lord would grant us wisdom, that he would grant us compassion, that he would grant us a love for them, that we would be wise to discipline them and to instruct them according to the ways of our Lord. For children, that they would not become embittered, that we ought to pray for them, that they would believe upon the Lord Jesus, that they would see that the promises are very great. Children, I hope you see in your own household at least this much, that God blesses those who are faithful to follow him, that he is one who is great, that we should remind our children, we prayed for this small thing, and you look, you hear, and you see that God was faithful to answer. Here I go back again to the children. And it's because I had this issue. Children, do you have it all figured out already? As you get older, you'll see it's not all figured out. How much it is that we must depend upon the Lord. Yes, our parents didn't have it all right. But we realize, nor will you, nor will I. And because of that, we're reminded we have hope for forgiveness in our Lord Jesus. We have the perfect example of our Father, and we must look to him, that he is the one who helps us in these difficult tasks, that he would bring us to humble submission, that he would show us a greater dependence upon him. May we go to our God together in prayer. Our Lord God, we thank you. For